This is Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. And now your host, Michael O'Fallon. We've seen this act that is happening with the Dutch farmers play out before, just recently. We had seen the Canadian truckers, in the middle of a long winter, decide that they had enough. They decided that they were not going to lay down and have the World Economic Forum celebrated king, Justin Trudeau, tell them what experimental medical procedures needed to be done in order for them to continue working. And the thing is... Justin Trudeau knew that his mandates for the truckers to engage in his Island of Dr. Moreau experiment would lead to tens of thousands of Canadian truckers saying, No. No, we won't. And yet, he did it anyway. Because the goal was never to ensure that the patriotic Canadian truckers that were, by the way, from all ethnic backgrounds, the goal was never to ensure that they were healthy or that they would do no harm medically to anyone else. The goal was to ensure that they would be out of a job. And that in making sure that they were out of a job, that there would be a crisis in the delivery of goods and services to people across Canada. Which, in turn, would mean that people would cry out for a solution to the crisis that Justin Trudeau has now created by forcing Canadian truckers to quit their jobs. And so, the solution would end up being, soon to come, driverless trucks. Because driverless trucks don't need vaccinations. Driverless trucks also don't go on strike and block highways. You see, driverless trucks do what the corporations and the government tell them to do. And that is how things have worked in many port and distribution centers in China, for the last several years. They have ports, yes, but no people to work at the ports, to unload containers that go onto trucks. And they have trucks, yes, but no people driving those trucks to take the containers to the distribution centers. And once those driverless trucks arrive at the distribution centers, There are once again no people necessary to unload the goods and distribute those imported goods for distribution to the Chinese population. At least, that is, to the Chinese population that have good social credit scores. And that is what Justin Trudeau's dream is. To make Canada like China. To make Canada a CCP-styled futuristic nation-state that is controlled by robots and artificial intelligence. Where people just exist. People that need to be groomed into being the creative class. A creative class of people who no longer participate in physical labor. That is what the robots do. You see, according to our new technocratic overlords like Klaus Schwab, Justin Trudeau, and Boris Johnson, all human beings are now obsolete. And in being obsolete, human beings now need to be transitioned into intellectual and creative positions, at least until the time that artificial intelligence can take over those positions as well. But for now, 
Schwab and Trudeau, will celebrate the diverse and individualistic lifestyles enjoyed by the creative class and involve active participation in a variety of experiential activities. The stylish neo-communo-fascist man by the name of Richard Florida uses the term street-level culture to define this kind of metaverse-guided fun lifestyle that can be led by people who have no purpose in life. Street-level culture may include a teeming blend of cafes, sidewalk musicians, and small galleries, and bistros where it is hard to draw the line between participant and observer, or between creativity and its creators. It is one big creative party. Every day, with no work. Kind of a lifelong TikTok video. That is what Klaus Schwab, Justin Trudeau, and the rest of the globalists are funneling all of us towards today. No purpose in life. Just transitioning from one hair color to another, transitioning from one gender to another, being creative on social media, and then it all stops, and then you die. But to have this equitable socialist world that is an endless party, you have to obey. So you have been put through obedience school over the past few years. And for you to be obedient, to obey their insanely tyrannical commands, commands like, don't go to work. If you go to work, we will arrest you. It is all for the common good. Don't take your children to the playground, or we will arrest you. Because it is all for the common good. Don't you dare go to church and worship, or we will shut down your church. Because it is for the common good. Don't you dare try to rally your community against our tyranny, or we will arrest you, because it is for the common good. Don't you dare post on social media that you disagree with our forced medical experimentation on the entire world, or we will shut your ability to communicate down, because it is for the common good. And now, don't you dare, you Dutch farmers, don't you dare try to keep farming in the middle of a food crisis or we will shut you down and take your farms from you. Because it is for the common good. But, you had better start using the correct pronouns to address someone, or we will bring charges against you. Because it is for the common good. You had better start supporting social justice, in other words, identity Marxism, because it is for the common good. You had better praise the dancing of drag queens in front of little boys, which will confuse them sexually for life, because it is for the common good. You had better bend your knee to Pride Month, and if you don't, we will hurt your credit score, because it is for the common good. And now, Dutch farmers are in the fight for their lives. Just like Canadian truckers were just six months ago. And the Dutch government is telling the farmers, you must obey. You see, farmers, we have made up a whole new bunch of rules and mandates and agreed to all of these fertile fallacies at COP26 in Scotland this past year. And now we have decided that, in the middle of a looming food crisis, that you need to stop farming and do something else. 
Because we are going to move onto something else instead of beef, pork, whatever it is that people want. You see, we have decided that the future of mankind's palate and taste buds will be worms, crickets, and soybeans. Yes, that is where the future of food is. But the Dutch government, for now, are using the fertile fallacy that their concern is the environment. They'll get to the bug stuff later. And so the farmers have rallied against the government's radical plan to cut nitrogen emissions by 30 to 70% as part of their green agenda. By the way, if you didn't know, Dutch farmers are the world's fifth largest exporter of food. Maybe you didn't know that. And the Dutch farmers are demanding that the Hague immediately reverse course, and have blocked the border between Holland and Germany over the rule, which would lead to the closure of dozens of farms and cattle ranches. And the Minister of Nature and Nitrogen Policy expects about a third of the 50,000 Dutch farms to disappear by 2030. The Dutch government offers a multi-billion dollar buyout arrangement for the farmers in the Netherlands. Christine van der Waal, Minister of Nature and Nitrogen Policy, has left open the possibility that the government will expropriate land from farmers who do not comply. In other words, they will just take away land from farmers who do not follow the World Economic Forum's plan for an enviro-communo-fascist utopian future. And these threats from the tyrannical governments come amid worldwide fertilizer and food shortages. And maybe, just maybe, this is beginning to sound a bit familiar to some of you. Maybe we need to start talking about what happened in Ukraine about 95 years ago. To 90 years ago. Now, most everyone in the sound of my voice has heard, to some extent or the other, of the horrible atrocities committed by Adolf Hitler against the Jews and his political enemies during the latter half of the Third Reich. But many do not know of the horrifying destruction of humanity during the Holodomor. And as I talk for the next few minutes, I want you to think about the warnings from the World Economic Forum, the warnings from Klaus Schwab about a coming famine, the food processing plants all over the world that have gone up in flames or been hit by random airplanes and destroyed over the last few months. I want you to think about these things happening. I want you to think about the ending of fertilizer distribution for American farmers to treat their crops for a good harvest. I want you to think about fuel prices that will make it nearly impossible for farmers to properly care for their crops. And then you have the warnings from United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who said on June 24th that, quote, there is a real risk that multiple famines will be declared in 2022, and adding that, 2023 could be even worse, end quote. And Guterres is not warning you to prepare. He is just telling you what is going to happen. Because 
This has been Long in Planning. Now, I want you to remember that Ukraine, for centuries, has been known as the breadbasket of Europe. Beginning in the 18th century, Ukrainian territories were divided between the Austrian and Russian empires. But in the bloody aftermath of World War I, and the overthrow of the Russian monarchy, by the way, that was on March 15, 1917, that basically was the Ides of March, by the Marxist-Leninists. So at the end of that, Ukraine set up a provisional government, declaring itself the Independent Ukrainian People's Republic in January of 1918, independent from communist Russia. The Ukrainian People's Republic fought the Bolshevik Red Army for about three years, from 1918 to 1921, but lost its fight for independence. The bulk of Ukrainian territory was forcibly incorporated into the Soviet Union, and by 1922 or so, Ukraine had become the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Then, the USSR sanctioned the requisition of all surplus agricultural products from the rural population that resulted in Ukraine's economic collapse. Discontent, protests, and a refusal from the Ukrainian farmers, not much unlike the Dutch farmers of 2022, forced Lenin to halt the requisitions and bring the new economic policy in March of 1921. And the new economic policy from Lenin was intended to provide greater economic freedom in Ukraine and permit private enterprise, mainly for independent farms and small businesses. And beginning in 1923, the Soviet authorities also pursued a policy of indigenization, which in the Ukrainian SSR took the form of Ukrainianization, a policy of national and cultural liberalization that promoted Ukrainian language, use in education, mass media, and government. The goal for the introduction of both new economic policy and Ukrainianization was to increase support for the Soviet regime in Ukraine. Because, you see, things were hot. There would be a bloody fight that the Russian communists did not want with Ukraine. So these policies were instituted to, let's say, wait it out. To give a little bit of time in Ukraine for the Ukrainian people to not be on high alert. And then, Lenin died. And Joseph Stalin took the reins of the Soviet Union. By the end of the 1920s, Stalin consolidated his control over the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And feeling threatened by Ukraine's strengthening cultural autonomy, Stalin took measures to destroy the Ukrainian peasantry and the Ukrainian intellectual and cultural elites to prevent them from seeking independence for Ukraine, to prevent Ukrainian national counter-revolution, Stalin initiated mass-scale political repressions through widespread intimidation, arrests, and imprisonment of the Ukrainian people. Thousands of Ukrainian intellectuals, church leaders, and Ukrainian Communist Party functionaries who had supported pro-Ukrainian policies were executed by the Soviet regime. And at the same time, Stalin decreed the first five-year plan, which included the collectivization of agriculture 
effectively ending the new economic plan. Collectivization gave the Soviet state direct control over Ukraine's rich agricultural resources and allowed the state to control the supply of grain for export. And in Stalin's plan, grain exports would be used to fund the USSR's transformation into an industrial power. Now, the majority of rural Ukrainians, who were independent small-scale or subsistence farmers, resisted this collectivization. They were forced to surrender their land, livestock, and farming tools, and work on government collective farms, coal husks, as laborers. But during this time, historians have recorded about 4,000 Ukrainian rebellions against collectivization, taxation, terror, and the violence by Soviet authorities in the early 1930s. They were, in many ways, brothers in spirit with the Dutch farmers of today. But the Soviet secret police and the Red Army ruthlessly suppressed the Ukrainian protesters. And tens of thousands of Ukrainian farmers were arrested for participating in anti-Soviet activities, were shot or deported to labor camps. The wealthy and successful farmers who opposed collectivization were labeled kulaks by Soviet propaganda. And kulak literally means fist. They were declared enemies of the state, and they needed to be eliminated as a class. This elimination of the so-called kulaks was an integral part of Soviet collectivization, and it served three purposes. Number one, as a warning to those who opposed collectivization. Number two, as a means to transfer confiscated land to the collective farms. And number three, as a means to eliminate village leadership. And so the Marxist secret police and the militia brutally stripped kulaks not only of their lands, but also their homes and personal belongings, systematically deporting them to the far regions of the USSR, or executing them. Now, these mass repressions, along with manipulation of state-controlled grain purchases and collectivization through the destruction of Ukrainian rural community life, eventually set the stage for the total terror. A terror by hunger. The Holodomor. And Ukraine, with its history of resistance to the Soviet rule, was a threat to the Soviet regime. So fearing that opposition to his policies in Ukraine could intensify and possibly lead to Ukraine's secession from the Soviet Union, Stalin set unrealistically high grain procurement quotas. And those quotas were accompanied by another draconian measure, intended to wipe out a significant part of the Ukrainian nation. So in August of 1932, Stalin's decree of five stalks of grain stated that anyone, even a child, caught taking any produce from a collective field 
could either be shot or imprisoned for stealing socialist property. At the beginning of 1933, about 54,645 people were tried and sentenced. Of those, 2,000 were executed for violating the five stalks of grain. So as famine escalated, growing numbers of farmers left their villages in search of food outside of Ukraine. So, directives sent by Stalin and Molotov in January of 1933 prevented them from leaving Ukraine and effectively sealing the borders of Ukraine. So Stalin prevented them from leaving in order to find food to survive. He restricted their movement. And to further ensure that Ukrainian farmers did not leave their villages to seek food in the cities, the Soviet government started a system of internal passports. Let me state that once again in case you missed it. To further ensure that Ukrainian farmers did not leave their villages to seek food in the cities, the Soviet government started a system of internal passports which were denied to farmers so that they could not travel or obtain a train ticket without official permission. These same restrictions applied to the Kuban region of Russia, which borders Ukraine, and in which Ukrainians made up the largest portion of the Kuban population, 67%. And at the time of the Holodomor, over one-third of the villages in Ukraine were put on blacklists for failing to meet grain quotas those unrealistic grain quotas that were set by Stalin. And blacklisted villages were encircled by troops and residents were blockaded from leaving or receiving any supplies. It was essentially a collective death sentence. To ensure these new laws were strictly enforced, groups of Activists, organized by the Communist Party, were dispatched to the countryside. Bust-in activists. Maybe that sounds a little familiar? Well, historian Clarence Manning describes the activists as follows. Quote, The work of these special commissions and brigades was marked by the utmost severity. They entered the villages and made the most thorough searches of houses and barns of every peasant. They dug up the earth and broke into walls of the buildings and stoves in which the peasants tried to hide their last handfuls of food. End quote. To escape death by starvation, people in the villages ate anything that was edible. Grass, acorns, even cats and dogs. Soviet police archives contain descriptions of the immense suffering and despair of the Ukrainian farmers. Ukrainian farmers that for years lived in peace with one another. In their reports, they included instances of lawlessness that included theft, lynching, and was well known, with plenty of evidence in historic pictures from the Holodomor, is that the Ukrainians resorted to Cannibalism. 
Dr. Jordan Peterson recited the fact that in many Ukrainian villages, the Soviets hung posters that stated, Don't forget, it's wrong to eat your children. And at the height of the Holodomor in June of 1933, Ukrainians were dying at a rate of 28,000 people per day. It is estimated that between 4 million to 6 million Ukrainians died during the Holodomor of 1932 to 1934. I mean, what's a million or two lives to be off by, right? I mean, to the Marxists in the end, as long as their goals were accomplished. It was about operational success. The terror of the Holodomor was a dual-purpose byproduct of collectivization designed to suppress Ukrainian nationalism and to end the independence and prosperity of a free people. To grab the people's land. To grab the people's ability to feed themselves. And to grab the people's ability to produce forever. And now I want you to think again to 2021 and 2022 and the restriction of travel for all of us that could be enforced again for no other reason than a medical emergency. To think about all the hundreds of thousands of businesses that were destroyed in 2020 and 2021 forever through lockdowns and restrictions. And I want you to think of all the men and women who were fired, who could not embrace in their minds and their conscience a medical experiment that was only a few months old. And I want you to now think of what is happening to our food supply all over the world. The random deaths of thousands of cattle across the United States because of heat in June. The culling of hundreds of thousands of chickens, the closing of processing plants, the inability of farmers to get proper fertilizer for their crops, and the strangeness of Bill Gates becoming the largest owner of farmland in the United States. And the extra steps being put in the way to travel all across the world based upon your vaccination status, your social credit scores, and whether or not you have the right ideas or not. And if you've been following me for a while, I've been warning everyone to prepare for pain, to prepare for scarcity like you have never been prepared before. And the reason is because we are about to enter a global Holodomor. And in some areas, it may be a soft Holodomor. And in other areas of the world, it may be a very hard, brutal Holodomor. But pain is coming. And the reason for this pain is to ensure that we are all on our knees that we will all be begging for mercy. That we will beg for assistance from the government and end self-reliance.
and the populations of the world will be funneled into a position of reliance on government. And then, equity can begin. Then, the equitable distribution of goods and sustenance can begin. Not equal, but equitable, based upon your intersectional standing. The new world, the world that is built on equity, diversity, and inclusion. A world where if a medical emergency isn't enough to stop the people in their tracks, then a fallacy of an environmental crisis will do. But, all of it, to give you one choice, one direction, in the end. A choice that was decided long ago. A choice that would allow for a reset of our systems. A great reset of our economic and governance systems. An end to the sovereignty and liberty of man. And the beginning of a dependent, weak people on their knees. The global Holodomor. The necessity of birthing pains. Because a century of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking Marxist cradle. And what rough beast. Its hour come round at last. Slouches towards Davos to be born. I'm Michael O'Fallon, and this has been Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. Thank you.